Welcome to episode three of season three of Free the Seed, the open source seed initiative podcast that tells the stories of new crop varieties and the plant breeders that develop them. I'm your host, Rachel Holtengren. This podcast is for anyone interested in the plants we eat, farmers, gardeners, and food curious folks who want to dig deeper into where their food comes from. It's about how new crop varieties make it into your seed catalogs and onto your tables. In each episode, we hear the story of a variety that has been pledged as open source from the plant breeder that developed it. Our guest today is Jonathan Spiro of Lupin Knoll Farm in southwestern Oregon. His plant breeding work focuses on open-pollinated sweet corn, which he has been working on since 2001. On his farm of about five acres, Jonathan also breeds kale, broccoli, sugar beets, and a few other vegetables. He was a member of the board of directors of the Open Source Seed Initiative from 2014 to 2018. Jonathan and I will be talking about Festivity, a multicolored sweet corn. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Rachel. Glad to be here. I'm excited to get to talk about this this new sweet corn variety that you've developed. And maybe we can start by having you just describe Festivity for us. What does it look like? Festivity is multicolored in that it has uh, not only white and yellow, but blue and red kernels. Uh, it has just a blush of color at milk stage, that is eating stage. But as the plants mature more, they become more darkly colored, like uh, what we call an ornamental corn sometimes. Uh, but it's a sweet corn. Mm-hmm. So take us back to the beginning. How did you get started on this project, and what was your goal with it? Well, the original goal was a multicolored sweet corn. Uh, the colors are generally phytonutrients, or this is my premise, and therefore corn with color is more healthy than corn that's just white. So this was my initial purpose. I had tasted some multicolored sweet corn that others have attempted and thought we could create something that is sweet, open-pollinated, sugary-enhanced, and has multiple colors. Has that been studied before, whether sweet corn that's more colorful has more um, more vitamins that are important to human health? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a premise. I mean, there are, I read about a program trying to convince people in a certain part of Africa that yellow corn was good to eat, that they believed that white corn only was good for humans. The yellow corn, of course, has as as nutrients that protect the eyes, uh, I don't know what some of these are. I'm going to work on the assumption that these are phytonutrients, that in general you're going to get more out of the corn that has more color to it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. How did you approach this project with that goal? How did I approach the project? Well, the first year, it was 2001, and... I needed, I wanted a uh, a yellow or yellow and white F1 hybrid sweet corn to use as a parent. And so that first year, we didn't do anything with color. I grew uh, a 100-foot row of each of 15 different F1 hybrids of the time, came from various sources, mostly from seed companies, and evaluated them for vigor, for productivity without fertilizing. I didn't fertilize at all that year just to see how they would do. And other characteristics that I liked, the taste of it, of course. 
and one variety kind of stood out, and that variety is called Tuxedo, which is a variety which is being removed from the market as an F1 hybrid, and so we selected that as the initial parent. And so the next year, 2002, that's when I introduced color. I picked up 15 or 16 lines of colored corn of various types, blue corns and Indian corns, corns from the GRIN, that's the government repository, corns from Seed Savers Exchange, had the requirement that they had color, uh, color that is other than whites and yellows. And I grew those 16 rows in a field twice that size, and every other row I grew that tuxedo. So the tuxedo was half the field, but was fully dispersed across the field. We detasseled all of those colored corns. We took every tassel of every row of everything that wasn't tuxedo, removed it. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the process of detasseling and why that's important in corn breeding? Oh, detasseling is is critical and relatively easy and something I like to do. In a lot of plants, separating out the male parts from the female parts is a very exacting, you know, magnifying glass and careful gloves, removing anthers from flowers, etc. Corn, the the male part is this tassel that's sticking up overhead. The female part is this silks which become the ear. They're physically separated. They're easy. So all you need to do is when a corn ear is starting to show its tassel is you reach in and you kind of jerk it vertically up and it pulls the tassel out. Then that plant is only female from then on. It will produce ears of corn as long as there's pollen to pollinate it, but that lets you use the one pollinator, in this case tuxedo, to pollinate 15 different multicolored corns. So through the process of detasseling all of those multicolored corn varieties, you were making sure that none of the pollen of those varieties was present in the field, so that any ear of corn that you harvested from that field, from any of those plants, it could only have had tuxedo as the male parent. Yes, that's correct. So then what did you do? So, okay, the next year, uh, so I now have 15 kinds of crossed corn, uh, of a multicolored corn providing the ear and tuxedo having provided the, the pollen. And so we grew out, we grew all of this corn out, samples of it. And we picked one that seemed the most interesting or, well, in many ways was the best. Once again, we got lucky and had one outstanding choice jump out of these selections. And that was an Anasazi corn. It came from Sand Hill Preservation Center. And by itself, the Anasazi corn, it's incredibly varied. It's got big ears and small ears. It's got ears that will tolerate drought and ears that will tolerate flooding and big kernels and small kernels. I believe it was created with the intent of people who wanted there to be some corn to make it regardless of the weather of that year. All that variation, in a way, it makes it's made it more difficult, but it's created incredible opportunities. There's all kinds of interesting, valuable, exciting corn varieties hiding within that those genetics. 
it, its variation creates the possibility to for for all kinds of different traits to emerge, different corn varieties to be developed from mm-hmm. that one cross. What's the story of the Anasazi corn? Do you know where that came from? Well, I can tell a story of it. It's allegedly very, very old corn from Anasazi caves, but uh, I have no way to prove that. Mm. Mm-hmm. But uh, like I said, it came to me from Sandhill Preservation Center, who, at least as of 2010, the catalog in front of me, once again had the variety uh, available, as do I. So that second year, when you grew out the the crosses, the hybrids of uh-huh. tuxedo and all of these multicolored corns, what did the field look like? Did you grow all of those plants with all of the seed sort of mixed up, or did you grow plots of them individually? No, those were rows in this year, that year, since I'm not saving any seeds that year. Uh, I did not isolate the individual corn varieties. I merely grew them out. I keep the rows four feet apart, which is enough that I probably get at least 80% self-pollination within the row. I'm glad that you pointed that out, that you weren't planning to save seed from these these rows necessarily. You were just growing them out to test them, to look at them and see if they were the combination that you wanted to continue going forward with. Because corn is wind-pollinated, it requires more management to prevent unwanted crossing, um, which can be done either through isolation distances of quite a large distance or through hand pollination. And so if you're growing corn in a field for seed, you need to know that no corn is being grown within about a mile of of your patch if you want to save seed from it. Is that right? A, a mile is, is high. Corn pollen's fairly heavy, and there's also wind direction. So I actually have three fields of corn. They are related corn, so the consequence of a tiny amount of crossing is small. But they're only six to eight hundred feet apart with some terrain breaks, and that seems to be adequate to minimize outcrossing. Now, if I had an absolute prohibited corn eight hundred feet away, especially if it was upwind, I would worry about it. But it doesn't really need a mile. It's not. It's not beet pollen. Mm. So beet pollen is lighter, and so it carries further. Beet pollen is lighter. Beet pollen can go three miles easily. Mm. Corn. You know, the one growers association rules I read said 660 feet. Uh, once again, terrain matters. 660 feet would be perhaps inadequate if we we're out in an open field. But if it's over the hill and through the woods, then that probably is enough. Mm-hmm. Once you had identified the Anasazi by Tuxedo Cross as the one that you wanted to continue taking forward, what did you do from that point? Well, that next year, I, I grew only Tuxedo. Actually, that was going to be the Tuxedo F2 that year because all of the Tuxedo in that field was only Tuxedo because it was the only pollen in the field. So I grew the Tuxedo F2, that is the second generation from the, the hybrid, and I grew Anasazi corn. And once again, I detasseled the Anasazi corn and therefore, the seed that was out there was all tuxedo crossed by Anasazi. 
It was all, excuse me, Anasazi crushed by tuxedo. Yeah, and the, the way that you say that makes a difference. When you're talking about a cross, the female plant is the first one that you say in that cross. So if it's Anasazi by tuxedo, that means that you saved the seeds from Anasazi and it was pollinated by tuxedo as the male parent. That's right. So then I just started growing those seeds out, generation on generation, and I started finding a great deal of variation for sweetness. I also was finding variation in, in color and type, and I started sorting out different varieties. The original line was this festivity was to try to keep multicolor. In that case, I rejected, you know, I looked for ears in specific that had the variety of colors within the individual ear. I also developed Texana, which is an all-white line. Uh, since the white is recessive, it was the easiest one to stabilize, even though the parents were a yellow and a multicolor. But back to festivity, the festivity was selected to keep all of the colors of the original Anasazi and, 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 and get to a larger, consistent, and sweeter ear. And a lot of the selection has been about sweetness. Can you describe the taste testing process for me? The method we've used mostly on this variety is you've got rows of corn. You know, usually I grow these in a quarter to a half acre block. And it can be a popular neighborhood event, especially since people who attend can sometimes come home with two or three bushels or more of corn if they want it. Uh, so... The population is variable, meaning going down this row of corn, some of the ears are going to be sweeter than others, and we're looking for sweetness. But also, most of these plants have two ears. A plant that is sweet in the secondary ear is probably sweet in the primary ear. So using that, once people have tasted a dozen years of corn or so, and kind of got a sense of, oh, yeah, this is sweeter than that. It would go down the row, break off the secondary ear, peel it back, take a bite, decide if it's a sweeter one or a less sweet one, and of the more sweet ones, we would flag the primary ear and leave that ear to mature. The fact that corn can have two ears makes this taste testing process a lot easier because if corn only had one ear per plant, then it would be difficult to both taste that ear to assess whether it was it's, a sweet plant and then also save that seed. It's much more difficult. What people will do is, is clip off the tip and then retie the end back together and hope it doesn't get disease. With one ear, that's about all you can do is go through with a garden loppers and clip that top inch or so of corn off have something to taste, and then reclose the ear. It's a lot more work. Yeah, it sounds like it would be. So you've got all of these these neighbors and friends helping you to taste and then to flag the best plants. How many plants do you take out of that that larger field? How many of them will go forward in each of the years that you continued working on this project? I was typically looking for something close to 50%. In other words, if we're tasting 2,000 years, we would want to end up with at least 600 flagged and as many as 1,000 flagged. When you were doing the taste testing, were you also assessing for color at that point? 
Uh, well, somewhat. I mean, if you peel back an ear and it was, it had no color, it was all yellow sage, then that was a rejection automatically in the festivity line because I wanted multicolor. So, yes, in that we're rejecting all yellow ears and ears that were really pretty might get counted in even if they weren't quite sweet enough. So there was a little room to play there. Mm-hmm. So you said that you were were aiming to have at least 600 plants every year that were coming out of the field as selections. And for corn plants, because they are a cross-pollinating plant, you need a certain number of corn plants both to assure adequate pollination and to have adequate population size for variety maintenance. A population of 300 is considered adequate. A population of 250 is probably adequate to maintain that genetic diversity. It is interesting to note with an open pollinated variety, you're trying to narrow traits somewhat, but not narrow the genetics to where you're getting inbreeding depression. So you do need to keep up that population of probably 250 or 300 plants. What does inbreeding depression look like in corn? Well, corn will, will drop pretty fast. I mean, if you're selfing, you see it, or if you just keep a very small population, the next year the plants will not be quite as big. They will not be quite as vigorous. In the first year, you don't notice it too much, but the productivity declines, the height of the corn declines, the size of the ear declines. The corn needs the vigor of of outcrossing, and it needs a sufficient population that are not all clones. Mm-hmm. You've described the taste testing process for us and the process of looking for color on the ears. What were some other traits that you were looking for while you developed festivity, and how did you evaluate those? Well, I worked on different traits in different years. Uh, for example, this year, 2019, one of the traits I've been breeding for is cold soil tolerance or the ability to emerge when planted in cold soil or early. And so to do that, I've planted about five days earlier each generation. I originally was planting about May 20th. This year I got back to about April 20th. Only about 25% of the stand came up. So that selection was actually uh, useful. I also plant very thick, uh, which allowed me to still have some type of a stand, even though I only got about 25% germination in the cold. That's another selection method. Seedling vigor is critical, especially for organics, especially for trying to grow without fungicides and all that stuff. So I plant thick. I plant Oh, on average, one seed per inch, sometimes even closer. By putting in a dozen kernels per foot and then doing about four selective thinnings, gradually taking out the weakest plants, I'm able to select for plant vigor. As far as color and appearance, most of that's actually done on the mature dry ear. You can't see as well at milk stage, and besides, if you peel back an ear that you're going to be saving for seed, at milk stage, you're damaging it. So color, I pick out, you know, of the dried ears after they're chucked and dried. So having really vibrant color at the mature stage, which is beyond the point at which the sweet corn would be picked for eating, 
but having that vibrant color later is strongly correlated with having color at the eating stage? Well, that, that, that is once again the assumption. And there is a little bit of a conflict here because the color appears as the kernels mature. Sweetness declines as the kernels mature, and people want their corn sweet. So it's difficult to find ears that turn color before they start to lose their sweetness. So it's a fine line of exactly when, when festivity would be the best to pick and eat, if you want it to be both interestingly colored and sweet. Right. You've pretty much got to harvest corn when it's at that milk stage, when it's at its peak sugar eating stage. I mean, certainly you can eat overripe corn, but it's not going to sell at the market. Uh, but I have found that these ears that have considerable color at maturity tend to have blushes of color at the eating stage, and, and that's what festivity is. Does that color hold up well to cooking, or are there cooking methods that that retain that color more than others? Most of these colors do. It has more to do with the difference in the colors than and their, their basis. Well, the cooking method certainly has an effect. If you roast your corn, you're not going to lose any color. But the blue and the yellow color are mostly down in the kernel. They're in the aleurone. They're underneath the pericarp, the skin, uh, and therefore they will hold up in cooking. Some of the reds are in the pericarp. They're in the outside. If you take a, a, a red corn and put it in boiling water frequently, when you take it out, you'll have kind of a grayish corn and very red water because uh, you lose your color into the water. But most of the yellow color in sweet corn, blue color in sweet corn, and some of the red-purple color in sweet corn is down in the kernel. Therefore, boiling it doesn't hurt, doesn't lose you anything. I see. So the different color compounds hold up differently, and that's at least in part due to where they are, where they're located in the kernel. And you recently released Festivity this year or last year? I, I grew Festivity in 2019, this year, and I grew about a half an acre of the field. This was remnant select seed. We had done an ear-to-row selection, which is a somewhat faster way than merely picking the sweetest ears. Can you describe ear-to-row selection for our listeners? Yes, I have, uh, and I have, I have what I grew this year selected out. So in, in, in this case, I picked 300 of the nicest-looking ears from the previous generation, and instead of just shelling them into one big basket, I show them into 300 individual bags. So I now have 300 choices, and they're separate from each other. So... Now I take my bags, I lay out the field, and I use a grid of 4 by 10. So grow a 10-foot section of row of each of those 300 ears. I give them a number. I give the bag a number. I give the row the same number. So I have number 47 here. I have not just one plant, but 10 feet of plant uh, of plants. We grow up those stands. We evaluate those individual mini rows, those 10-foot blocks from one parent as a, as a unit, 
and we taste test and we look at productivity and size and vigor and in these cases we look quite a bit more because we have a dozen plants to evaluate as as a cluster of those 300 i pick usually the 100 best and then we go back to the remnant seed remember we each of these 300 plants is in one bag so now we've picked the 100 we like best we know the numbers 47 and 62, et cetera, are, are ones we liked. We go back and take only those bags out, mix those seeds. That's called remnant select seed. That's the leftover seeds from the ones we chose. And we plant that for the next generation. The advantage of doing ear-to-row selection over just taking the, the best ones and saving the seed is that your very nice plant may have been pollinated by something that wasn't so good. And therefore, you haven't gained very much. Whereas if you can choose only the best plants and then go back and only grow the best plants, then you've eliminated your weakest pollen. You're going to make a little faster progress towards sweeter, more vigorous, et cetera. Right. So when you went out in the field and you picked those 100 plots that were the best of the 300 plots, if you had pulled ears off of the best plots when you went out there, it could have been the case that they had been pollinated by some of the ones that you didn't pick. And so you would have some of that genetic material in your population still in the next generation. So you were able to eliminate that possibility by going back to the seed that was left over from you're planting that spring. Yeah. Yeah, that can be a really powerful way to make more progress more quickly in a breeding project. Process is slow. I mean, we've worked with sweetness for year after year after year, and you gain, but you gain slowly. And I think we gain faster with the ear-to-row selection. And in festivity, we have done two such cycles, and I just prepared... We just picked out 300 ears from what we harvested in 2019 and have individually bagged them for a future ear-to-row grow-up. So even though this is a variety that you're offering through your seed company, it's still a, a project that is ongoing. You're continuing to select it. That is correct, especially with festivity. Festivity, trying to keep all that variability from the Anasazi and in color and et cetera, it's pretty diverse and it's going to be an ongoing process to continue to improve and refine. So yes, I am selling seed, but yes, I am also still trying to select and improve the seed each year. And now that you've released it, you've pledged festivity as an open source variety. What does that mean to you? What does it mean? Well, I didn't invent corn. Food really should be available. The concept of patents on a seed, to me, restricts the possibility of people producing food. Once again, I have to emphasize, I've crossed some corn and I've selected some corn. I didn't create corn. That's based on a thousand generations before me. I've made some small tweaks. I don't see that making it uh, intellectual property is is reasonable, or that reason that intellectual property rights should exist on this ear of corn. The food source 
really should not be restricted in that way. How long have you been thinking about intellectual property rights as they apply to plants? And what was the evolution, if there was an evolution, to your your thinking about intellectual property rights? I don't think I've ever really believed that genetics is something to which there's a right of ownership. And so I've worked with public domain varieties. Public domain varieties are varieties that have not had intellectual property restrictions placed on them. I was drawn to the open source concept because, A, it brings that out. It says to the world, this isn't owned property. This is common heritage of mankind. And it also includes this virality concept, meaning that if you take my corn and want to select it, improve it, cross it, make it more useful to whatever you're trying to do, you're absolutely free to do that. But that you can't do that and then turn around, take my work, make a tweak in it, and patent it, and lock other people out of that corn. So the open source, to me, is very valuable to keeping food in the public domain. I you know, believe that some rights to compensation are valuable, some rights that do not restrict others from growing the seed, using the seed, using the seed to take the next step. Once again, my corn crosses are, in my opinion, an improvement, but they're one step in thousands of years of corn breeding. And so intellectual property rights should be limited in such that I can't lock that past work up. Mm -hmm. In a previous episode, Dr. Goldman made the point that just because a variety is pledged as open source does not mean that the breeder can't receive remuneration for it. It's freed seed, not free seed. And I wondered, have you received any financial compensation for developing festivity? Well, I received this just last week. This is, has to do with Texana, a related variety. And this is the Snake River Seed Cooperative in Idaho. And they sent me a very nice letter saying they've been growing the Texana corn for several years and they like it for several reasons. And they sent me a check for 5% of the value of the corn that they have sold, though they grew the corn. I've never even heard of these folks. This is a, this is a voluntary royalty sent out by somebody using the corn, seeing that it's open source and seeing that there was some value in breeding it and, and being kind enough to want to repay that. So one way of receiving remuneration for developing a variety would be these royalties that you've just described. Another would be if you were to sell the seeds of that variety yourself from your seed company, you could use some of the funds that you got from those seed sales to fund your projects on your farm. Are there other ways that independent breeders can receive compensation for developing varieties? Well, there are grants available, at least sometimes. The Organic Farming Research Foundation helped fund the process of developing festivity between 2011 and 2014. They reimbursed me for some of those costs of the ear-to-row grow and, and some of the taste selection. So grant funding is a possibility. The federal government now has more grant funding tied to organic than they did in the past. So I would say that grants are probably a major source. Voluntary royalties are potentially a valuable source. If your variety 
gets enough popularity to sell enough quantity that a, a, a few percent, in this case a 5% royalty, starts to add up to a significant amount. Once again, that takes selling more corn, more people, more success as the plant breeder in developing something that people want to buy. What would it take for independent breeders to make more money on varieties that they develop? Well, one almost has to figure out how to fund that development. The problem is, you know, the festivity I've been working on, you know, for most of two decades every other year. So there's eight or ten years of work in there, and there's no there's no real return in that time. So that either depends on something like grant funding or on essentially making it a hobby. And be honest, I'm at this point I'm cutting back some. I have developed the last four or five generations at my own expense, and I do not sell enough to cover the expense of what I'm creating, so I have to consider on some level it's a hobby. I know that's not a great answer for somebody trying to make a living. <laughs> the, the next year to row on the festivity is going to wait until somebody wants to finance it, to be honest. I have grown that remnant select seed. I've selected 300. I've bagged them separately and put it away. An ear to row grow is a fair size project. It's done on about four tenths of an acre of land. It takes a bit of time. And uh, it will be waiting for somebody who wants to create additional funding or improvement. Will. Meanwhile, I have seed to sell of what I have, which I think is pretty good. If it's a hobby that you're doing because you love it, not because you're making a lot of money on it, what do you love about it? Well, I like working in the ground. I like the selection of making better food. I find that one way that somebody working in a small farm situation can make a difference is in improving or developing varieties so that there is better corn out there, so that the corn doesn't need fungicides to keep it from rotting uh, or whatever traits. So I enjoy working and selecting and picking. I am attempting to make a living at this. I just can't say I've done real well at it. So what do I love about it? I love coming. I love that this festivity corn is better corn than anything that I had a decade ago. So I think these are valuable contributions to the food security and food supply. Thanks for doing that work. I enjoy it. Do you have any advice for someone wanting to breed sweet corn? Breeding sweet corn is fairly easy. Uh, I have found that the possibilities are there. You can you can take a hybrid and stabilize it. That is, grow it out enough generations that it becomes reasonably uniform. Uh, you can make crosses like a, the Anasazi Tuxedo cross is a fairly wide cross. It's produced a lot of corn. It doesn't, I mean, it takes a little bit of space, but doesn't take huge amounts. When you've got a wide cross, you don't need the big populations. It's easy to do. You don't have to worry about emasculating flowers, etc. You can control the pollen by detasseling. So 
I find corn an easy crop to deal with. It's also nice that the seed is the crop, so you save a year. If I grow a, a broccoli or whatever, I've got to grow it out the next year to find out how did I do? What's the quality of the offspring? Whereas with corn, the offspring is the ear of corn that year. So uh, you see the colors, for example, immediately. I'm just saying corn, once again, corn is not a difficult crop to work with. It may be a difficult crop to stabilize. We've selected for sweetness several years now, and we're gaining, but it's not a difficult crop to work with. And you can eat your mistakes. That is really nice. Are there any books or videos or other materials that you would recommend for someone wanting to start a vegetable breeding project? Um, sure, I would make some, some recommendations. Um, two books that I have relied on a great deal. The first is uh, Dr. Carol Deppy, who you have introduced, and her Breed Your Own Vegetable Varieties. Uh, that's the book that I would credit with teaching me a lot of the how of basic breeding. The other reference I use a great deal, especially for quick questions, you know, will will uh, garlic cross with onions, etc., is a book called Seed to Seed by Suzanne Ashworth. It's got an incredible amount of that type of information, concise and easy to find. That's two books I would recommend. The Seed Savers Exchange Yearbook I like to use a great deal because I use I look through it and find out some of the more unique material that's out there. And so by looking through the 80 kinds of corn, looking for corn that might have such and such a trait, it also, of course, allows me to buy and get some of those seeds to trial. Is that primarily where you find new varieties to include in breeding projects or trialing? Once you start breeding with something, you're not looking for new material too often, for too long. When I was selecting all these corn varieties to trial and before choosing the Anasazi Tuxedo Cross, yes, I used the exchange yearbook a great deal. I looked through seed catalogs. I also used the GRIN, the, the government repository for seeds, which has a lot of unique older seed types. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about festivity or about breeding sweet corn or about intellectual property rights that you would like to share with our listeners? Corn's got its challenges each year. One year's dry and one year's wet and one year's cold. But multiple years of continued selection, I think, it gives you a robust variety. It gives you corn that, that goes through some different challenges is going to hopefully have different strengths. What would you say was the greatest challenge in developing festivity? The greatest challenge has been trying to get consistent sweetness. Sweet corn has gotten sweeter over the last 50 years, such that what was considered sweet in our younger days or my younger days is not sweet enough now. And since this cross included this much variation, selecting for sweetness has been the biggest challenge and something we've worked on year after year. When you're doing those taste tests with different people in the field, what do you use as the sort of standards that everybody tastes before they go out to do the evaluations? Do you use extremely sweet sweet corn? Well, here 
here's how, no, I don't use a different corn. It's relative sweetness. So what I'll typically do is have three people on two rows. And the first 10 or 12 plants, you break off the secondary ears and all three people taste them uh, until they're getting some agreement on what's sweeter and what's less sweet. Then, because there's thousands of ears to do, you can't have three people tasting every ear. One person goes down each row making those choices. And once you've tasted 10 or 20, you can pretty quick say, yeah, that's sweet or that's not sweet. But with the third person, if it's indeterminate or sometimes your taste buds start to get tired, the third person would be the kind of decider in between for both rows. So a person can just march down a rose, breaking off an ear of corn, taking a bite, and most of the time either just flagging it or not flagging it and go on. Mm-hmm. How many ears of corn can someone taste before their taste buds get tired? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, if you can convince them at the beginning not to take big bites and not to, oh, sweet corn, chomp it down, typically about 250. We're doing about two and a half hours of corn tasting. Uh, and in that time, a person could taste about 250 years. Now, that's a lot. But to get the populations up, you need to keep tasting. you got to convince people right from the beginning. You just take a little bite and probably even spit it out. Because a couple hundred years later, you've had enough corn. It's true. Mm-hmm. Only some people are hardcore enough to want to come back day after day. Other people are saying, no, I've, I've had my corn for the year. <laughs> that is a lot of corn. Thanks again, Jonathan, for talking with me about festivity. It sounds like a really interesting project, and I'm really glad that we were able to talk about sweet corn today. I've enjoyed it. My pleasure. I've been speaking today with Jonathan Spiro of Lupin Knoll Farm about festivity sweet corn. You can purchase seed of festivity through Siskiyou Seeds, that's S-I-S-K-I-Y-O-U, or Restoration Seeds. Or you can email Jonathan through his website, at www.lupinknollfarm.com. A full transcript for this episode is available on our show notes, along with photos of festivity, and those show notes will be on the Open Source Seed Initiative's website at osseeds.org. We'll also have links to the books that Jonathan recommended. You can get in touch with me at rachelholtengren.com. You can find and like the Open Source Seed Initiative on Facebook, and follow Free the Seed on Spotify, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevear. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm your host, Rachel Holtengren, and this has been Free the Seed. <laughs>